Welcome to episode 57 of the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, The Art of Classical Equitation with Belinda Bolsonbrook. I think I first found out about Belinda when I came across a discussion with her and Manolo Mendez, I think on Andrew Turnbull's Facebook page. So um, shout out to Andrew Turnbull. Thank you for introducing me to Belinda, um, even though you probably have no idea that you did that. And um, side note, I would love to have Andrew on the podcast at some point as well. Um, But anyway, when I was watching this... Uh, discussion between Manolo and Belinda, a lot of the things that Belinda was saying really resonated with me. And then I looked a little bit deeper um, onto her website and watched some videos of her writing and thought, wow, yes, this is this is the essence of dressage that I'm looking for, that I'm seeking in my own writing. And I'm constantly looking for really good examples of writers who are Uh, riding dressage in a way that prioritizes partnership and in a way that it looks beautiful and enjoyable for the horse, right? So that's why I really wanted to get Belinda on today because she embodies that so beautifully and I wanted to share her message with, with more people. So who is Belinda? Belinda is a international authority on the art of classical equitation in which the historic relationship between horse and human is expressed as a spiritual connection between two beings. Belinda harnesses the wisdom of the old masters and combines that wisdom with the science of biomechanics and shapes them both into a clear and defined practice that allows you to take your horsemanship to the next level. In this episode, we discuss Belinda's upbringing with horses from competitive riding on Dutch warmbloods, international competition, Olympic ambitions, and her turning point towards classical dressage, Belinda's healthy and holistic approach to training horses, the evolution of competitive dressage and why many classical riders don't compete, how contact should feel when it is based on connection, not force, Belinda's interests in the thoracic sling and nervous system of the horse, the importance of reflection and questioning in your horsemanship journey, her interesting answer to the favorite horse purchase question that I ask all of the guests. I think Belinda might be starting a new trend with this one, plus all the usual fun horsemanship breakthroughs, questions, plus so much more. What I really liked about Belinda when I spoke to her was her really calm and confident energy. And she's very clearly extremely knowledgeable and passionate about her um, her area of expertise. And I really think, as I've said, that she's a great example of what dressage with partnership looks like. Now, apologies, we did record this episode before April, and she does talk about her online academy being launched in April, but I did have a quick look, and um, I don't think the membership is actually quite launched yet, so you might still be in luck if you're wanting to dive deeper, and I know she has other online offerings as well, like coaching packages and webinars if you wanted to dive deeper into her work, plus she does clinics all over Australia, so you can always get in touch with her. As always, let me know what you think of this episode. If you're listening and it resonates with you, reach out to me on Instagram at Amalia underscore horses. Take a screenshot of this episode on your phone, share on social media, 
the more we can get the word out about the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, the more we can spread the word of positive and partnership-based horsemanship in the horse world. So thanks for listening and let's dive into today's episode. Welcome to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast, a source for riding and training insights with the goal of helping your horse be a light, happy and willing partner. I'm your host, Amalia Dempsey, a mainstream equestrian rider who discovered natural horsemanship and equine learning theory, and now I help riders like you achieve connection and communication with your horse so you can have more fun and fulfillment whilst prioritizing the partnership. Get more learning resources, including my free connection and communication mini course at AmaliaDempsey.com. Click the follow button so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave me a rating and review or screenshot this episode and share on social media. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome Belinda Bolsonbrook to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm super excited to chat all things classical equitation. Thank you, Amalia. It's nice to be here. So first up, can you tell us a bit about your horsemanship journey so far from when you got into horses and what has led to what you're doing today? Sure. Um, Look, I was born in a horse family, so I was very lucky that way. I come from family that's had horses um, also even before, far before I was born, like my grandparents even and, and before them. So it's a bit generational kind of horse lovers. and. I grew up in my parents' stud farm and they also had a riding school as I grew up besides other businesses. And um, so I I really started from an early age. I started in a a competitive atmosphere. My um, father was very interested. My parents bred German Wombblad horses and Dutch Wombblad horses because I was in the Netherlands. And uh, so I started with uh, competitive riding when I was younger. And it was sort of in the time when I was uh, picked to start training with the Olympic um, coach of the time to make it all the way. I had everything behind me to uh, to really start uh, going as as far as 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 you can go. And um, I, and I was doing international competition at the time, so I moved from my parents' farm to this coach to do the training, and then. It was a smack in the face. My mother has a classical background in the training, and my father was of like a classical German uh, approach in the in the training. So a little bit more modern, but not not in any way. Always just in the mindset of uh, really as horse lovers and wanting to do the best by the horses. And so when I was in that moment, going outside of my own own world, I guess um, that was the time when Angie van Grensen was like you know, the big the big winner everywhere and where Chef Janssen was starting to really promote, particularly in the Netherlands, of course, in our environment, this Lodi Brown training. And so I was also exposed to that. And uh, and that really, I didn't like that at all. So I, I literally only um, lasted a very short time. And, uh, and because... I was training on my own horse, brought one of my own stallions, and uh, and my relationship with the stallion just 
I just could feel after three days he he was uh, looking at me like I don't know what we're doing what we're doing with this kind of method and of course I didn't have the knowledge I have now but I had enough knowledge to uh, I did a lot of rehabilitation on on horses at the time already and uh, on on horses that come out of the sports and that needed to be helped to be either sound both usually mentally and physically and so uh, I, I stepped away from the competition arena altogether. And then I came just because it just I just didn't fit with me in the practices that were asked at the time. So I was uh, young and so I didn't think that I wanted to have anything to do with it to the big disappointment of my dad in particular. And I changed uh, also my horses a little bit. I had the warm blood sports horses and I started having my first uh, classical breeds so I got uh, a PRE a purebred Spanish horse first and then um, I, I built on that in uh, in in the Netherlands I ended up with I think five um, Iberian horses and and uh, Fredericksborg and uh, which is a classical Danish breed and then I um, I started training with some classical trainers I became a knight in Ben Brandrup's uh, academic art of riding and then I got exposed to just because I continued my search of learning and I really liked, I mean, I really loved uh, Ben Brandrup's teaching for what he brought back in that he brought back the works of the old masters and what they were teaching in a time when horse and human had to work as if they were one as war horses and warriors. And so I liked that a lot but I was still missing some things and I just needed to really understand for me what is correct and how do we know that we're doing the best by our horses because growing up with horses I had a close relationship with all of my animals and so I didn't want to have any part in training that disregarded their autonomy to some um, respect and so I, uh, I started searching. I went to, to visit Gerd Hoschmann um, and he opened my world to the biomechanics. And then I did my own uh, search on that. I developed um, massively on that. I built an amazing community of students on and of which many are professional equine specialists. And part of that is also a small group with uh, with which we do dissections. So I've done a whole lot of learning on what's correct in to the body of the horse and also the damage that we do to horses uh, when we're when we're not thinking things through so well. Just the the common practices um, cause a lot of hurt in horses, and so that's where I ended up now in my journey. That I've got an amazing group of. Um, students that are professionals in their own right and that helped me to be an ambassador for the horse. Wow, beautiful. What an incredible journey. Um, something that I was thinking about as you were explaining that story um, was, well, for as long as I've been in, involved in the horse community, um, low deep round or rolker or those hyperflexion type methods have always been around. So I don't really know what the world looked like before that. Um, and you mentioned that uh, that sort of came into fashion, so to speak, when you were competing. What was mm. the competition world like before that? Have you seen a, a change in uh, dressage competition? And how does classical dressage differ from modern dressage or, or competition that we see these days? 
look, what was before that is not necessarily that it was all too brilliant as well. Like we must remember that dressage as a competitive sport is really only just taken off in the in the 60s i mean really only taken off first of all um olympic dress has didn't start until i think 1925 so and then we had the war and then it wasn't taking off until i think 56 that there was a dressage a competitive dresses that we started getting the fei and rules and so we must also remember that at this time there it, it was a way of the first the first uh, idea of starting to do competitive riding was actually just to bring people back together to get like you know get a, an atmosphere of people spending time well together not necessarily from the look of how what are we doing to the horse what are we asking of the horse and even in the guidelines of um of how to perform dressage i mean there's been huge discussions early on in dressage to either not have piaf and passage in there because really no one really knew how to execute it that well or you know or how to actually evolve starting to make counter canter before making a canter uh, change there's just all sorts of things that in the classical uh, world and classical world is just that what what the old masters were um teaching to the horses when horses were still part of an everyday life and also part of uh, a partner in the battlefield where they had to be at their best, their most agile, the closest to their partner, the human. And that is what classical training should be. It's to stay in what is harmonious and natural to the horse and to the best of its nature in the education. So I think that what we have in modern training practices is that we've lost a lot of the knowledge and that the the part of the competition has taken sort of a run of it of its own to perform something that is perceived as beautiful but not necessarily as correct to the body and mind of the horse and that's a big issue that's why we have so much uproar and so much people fighting now standing up saying this is not okay um, these horses are hurting. These are signs of pain in the horse. And it's very important. It's an important fight because it doesn't have to be a difference. We can actually compete with horses in a classical manner as well in a way that is friendly and that is enjoyable for the horse as well. Um, it's just that we need to make some big changes for that. And that has to come, first of all, with knowledge because no one starts hurting horses for joy people get carried away when it's about winning but it's also a complete misunderstanding of the animal and what's the and what's their spirit so um and that's what i'd like to change so in hindsight i stepped away from it because at the time walker was uh really popular it was a way to create better scoring and the horses were starting to show more extravagant movement because basically they're being pulled apart and obviously we know now that um that how severely they break down uh, from those training practices or most people are sort of aware of that before that they had problems with horses that were being stiff and rigid and that also had some issues that had joint wear because their suspension systems weren't working so it was just a way of of trying to find 
a better way of getting the horse move through the body elasticity and uh, and and to move through the back as they like to call it right with a complete misconception of what that really is because there's no scientific um, baseline behind the training approaches if that makes sense and luckily that's where we're coming to now is that we are getting a much better um, backup of science and and so the research is showing us what's right and what's wrong and we also have the um, the other part of it where we're becoming more aware of the spirit of the horse and and how to listen to horses better. Yes, and I think deep down, um, you know, most dressage riders really do want that connection that, and that partnership with their horse and they, they wouldn't intentionally um, want to do dressage in a way that would hurt their horses. However, I feel like um, in the mainstream kind of competition worlds, um, we don't have a whole lot of, uh, I guess, classical dressage or really excellent examples of what dressage can be like. So when I watch videos of you on, on your website, Belinda, I go, yes, this is what dressage should be like. But we don't, mm. it's not mainstream. We don't see it a lot. And I think perhaps is that because um, we don't see those riders in competitions, so they're not kind of being those role models for the younger generations. Do you think that is? And, and why do you think many classical trainers um, don't compete in competition? Um, it's quite simple. It's because if you are because it's because it's not important on their mind because they're riding for the horse mm -hmm. not for an accomplishment that is judged by other people so i think that's why you don't see them so much in competition if there is someone there is people that that do like i've done it myself i've i've also taught riders that are like heavily or teach riders that are competing but I've taught riders right at the top and um and it was it's difficult because you have to compromise because th the knowledge is not there and so there's always compromise for the horse being made and that's at this point at that point in the world it's accepted so when you say like also of course you absolutely right what we're both um discussing is is that riders in the competitive world they're not necessarily out to hurt their horses it's just that we're come to a place where they're living in a par parallel existence of their horse and where things that are that should be viewed upon as being abusive are are not looked at at all there are there's an oversight because it's been done that way for a certain amount of time and so it's okay that you know, you you kick your horse, you 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 whip your horse, you use heavy spurs, you hang on the mouth. It's okay that the tongue's blue. Um, oh, really? Does that hurt the horse? There's a, there's a lot of misconception, oversight, and and just also some ignorance. Um, because really today we should all be looking for the answers. There's so much more knowledge out there now. So I think it's a uh, it's just a matter of time those things will change. And and when those things will change, I'm sure that there will be classical writers that will also like to show that in a in a competitive set, uh, setting to some extent. It's much harder to do competition on a form of when you approach something in the classical because it is a continuous learning experience between you and the horse. So a rider, a, a true classical rider, is riding their horses for the horse on 
every day when they are in the arena or you know when they're out on the trail or whatever it is and so there wouldn't be a set pattern per se to do something so much because as in riding from a to be and doing certain things right is what i mean just as in the exercises performed as when a classical rider is riding the horse they might want to change the exercises as it feels to what the horse is needing at the time and therefore gets to a greater level of competence strength balance and equilibrium if that makes sense mm, yes yes it does and um i i think yeah i think a lot of people aren't they still perhaps are listening and going, oh, this sounds great, but I actually don't really know what that looks or feels like. Could you tell us um, perhaps a summary of your training approach or philosophy with horses and what good classical dressage should feel like when you're riding? Well, first of all, that is, of course, for everybody their own personal journey with their horse because that's where it starts it's a partnership between you and the horse it's quite amazing that we can sit on that we're allowed to sit on this animal and that the animal the horse will actually enjoy the partnership as much as we do when we are taking a correct approach to that when we and that means first of all to take full responsibility for what you decide to do with your horse because at the end of the day that's how it works everybody that owns a horse is the decision maker of the life of that horse and so for me that means that you are always reflecting on what you're doing um, why you're doing it and is it improving the life and well-being of your horse or is it not and that's the two choices and we should obviously always take the first one right um for the approach in training the first essential understanding is what does your horse look like what's your horse confirmation and what is the healthy form of movement to carry a rider for your horse if you wish to ride your horse because i have riders or i have students i should say that don't ride their horses and want to do just groundwork and educate their horses on the ground and that's just as much a beautiful journey um if that is what someone wants to do or if it's better for the horse because we have a, a compromised horse so it doesn't have a set pattern as such but when you understand first of all what is in the nature of your horse by understanding their confirmation and then also understanding their compensation patterns of movement their natural crookedness the, the parts in the body that might already be under a little bit of stress to help the horse and be like a therapist to your horse to expand your knowledge so that you know what movement to pick because every movement in dressage has a purpose it is it is it has come to a form in an S, a dressage exercise to help the horse to release blockages and strengthen and balance their body to move well under a rider that's what the purpose of dressage is so that's the other part of the training is to understand all these um all these different exercises when to use them and what to do with them and of course the most important part of uh of this relationship between horse and rider is that partnership and that is that i for me, it's extremely important in the training to keep a level of autonomy uh, for the horse. That means that we keep a voice for the horse, that we create a war horse 
And that means that we don't take any submissive practices. So there's no part of, there's no place in the training for telling a horse what to do because he also just needs to toughen up and do what he needs to do or her. Um, we don't, we don't do that because horses are very submissive by nature and they will try to do whatever it is their human wants unless they can't. And horses that are playing up and are considered to be dangerous or naughty are horses that are suffering and because they've been misunderstood and they haven't been able to communicate their suffering to the owners of the time uh, or wherever they're, you know, they're placed. So that is part of my um, education, like uh, that I, I want to keep that autonomy. A horse needs to be able to tell the person to say no. And because it's able to tell the person, I can't do that, it's in a very subtle and soft way. So animal communication is a big part of my training as well. So it doesn't show itself in a horse that always says no or that you cannot do anything with or a bucking horse, far from it. Um, I've had absolute amateur riders um, start their own horses through clinics and through their own journey by building on that relationship and never have a moment of danger. So, and I believe that as well to actually train your horse from the beginning as much as you can all by yourself and create your relationship with the horse, just you and your horse. So um, that's, that's my, um, that's my practice. And, uh, and with that, we can bring it to the absolute highest levels of education. I uh, trained riders and of course myself as well. I bring horses to the high school movements. They can do all the Grand Prix movements. And I have show jumpers, eventers in my, uh, amongst my students. So it doesn't mean that you can't choose a discipline. It means that the basic is the most important, the foundation with, that we start correct um, with those ingredients. Yes, love that you mentioned that. And I feel like um, it sounds like that really this dressage, the way that you do it is really for the horse. It's setting that foundation. It's based on partnership and everything you do is is really to help the horse be a better version of themselves physically and mentally. That's sort of what I'm gathering from what you're saying with your uh, philosophy and approach with horses. And I'm sure that along your journey and all the research you've done, all the experience that you've had, you've had probably many breakthroughs. What has been your biggest horsemanship breakthrough to date? Oh, look, there's been so many of them, of course. Um, there's there's the discoveries that you make and then the confirmation of other specialists that come up with the same ideas as if there is a secret word out in the universe and all of a sudden people talk about the same thing it yeah. happens all the time <laughs> like when i um when i was many years ago i started working within i started understanding the functioning of the body and the importance of the thoracic sling mm -hmm. and how it functions how it balances the horse and it was never mentioned as such and uh, all of a sudden uh, also within my own community or in an indirect community like Gert Heuschmann, for example, wrote an amazing book about that uh, thoracic sling functioning. It's only a very small um, little book, but it was it was just right when I had been teaching uh, it for about a year, I would say that his little that his little book came out and, and explained it 
on in a book form. And so those are really big breakthroughs because they have fast forwarded the journey um, for for everyone in my community and in also the wider world because a lot of people and as I said it's just serendipity in that right like it's not that I've invented it at all it's just that it seems to be that through the research that everybody's doing we're, we're often fall, falling in the same um, discoveries um, and then for me up to date now another big one one of the most important structures for me as I find the way for horses to back to soundness is that I understand the functioning of the spinal column and the nervous system and that I understand the importance of space in the body and it's a very difficult um, topic I guess that in somewhat, it might not be the appropriate like time to just go too deep into that because I'm sure you have lots of other things to talk about. But <laughs> um, but to find space and and to how to recognize uh, nerve dis, uh, uh, dysfunction to the uh, to in the neural pathways and uh, nerve impingement or um, or damage. And how this can be birth trauma and ridden trauma, right? And or injury trauma it can be from every every way. Once you understand that, what I have discovered is that I can help people with their horses from a completely dysfunctional and lame horse to create a sound moving horse in moments by realigning the body without force letting the horse find the space in the body and uh, therefore um creating the alignment so that the nervous system can work properly that's a that's a huge discovery that um that goes deeper in the understanding of movement again and uh, and i'm so happy i can help horses that way yeah wow that is fascinating and um i did have a little stalk on your website um and i saw that you've got a few online offerings do you teach any of this if people want to go deeper into those areas do you teach any of this online or would they need to go into a clinic with you um how can they find out more about this um i have um i have a online platform it's also about to launch we're going to launch in april um Properly, we have courses that will come up, like full educational courses that will cross all of the topics and um, and lessons. And then I also offer online masterclass. There are only a few times a year now because there are bigger events, but where people can actually uh, come in and, and experience and ask questions uh, online and and um, I'll be live and, you know, we'll talk about it. I also have a a number of clinics that i do um now for example uh, i will be a month in in australia in march um and and hold clinics and then i will um be back again towards the more of the end of the year for a similar um thing and then i have a lot of students that also once we have our platform online my um students that are also coaches are able to help people on the on the on the ground as well. So on my platform, um, that is already there. You've been through the website a little bit, but at this moment, it's very silent because I have a very large student base and I can't help everybody at the same time. But in this way, I will start to bring that knowledge 
and make it available to people to learn in their own time frame. Um, and the biggest reason for doing that is because I want to empower horse owners to actually be able to have the answers so that they're not, because I think one of the biggest reasons of the things that we spoke about before, why people go in the wrong direction, why um, their horses start to have issues mentally and physically is because you just don't know. You're just out and lost in the forest somewhere. And there's so many people that, that can, that have, that offer to advise you often contradicting each other. And so um, that's what I, I, a, my biggest goal is to, uh, to f empower people to have the right answers because they can find um, find the correct answers on a platform like mine that is evidence-based um, research and material on how to then move that research into actually working with your horse. Fantastic. I think we'll all be keeping an eye out for your next launches. And on the note of people needing those answers because of... Um, I guess, a lack of knowledge. What is something that you wish that every horse owner would do differently? To, every is of course always hard to say, but um, to reflect always, to take a moment, to, to take a moment to question everything. Um, that you're that you're asked to do with your horse if things don't go well to take a step back and to take a moment to recompose yourself and the situation with your horse and to listen to your horse most of all because they're just trying to tell you something if things aren't going so right and I think then a buffle is to I would like an owner to feel empowered enough to know that that you are responsible for your horse. You you own it. You make the decisions from the moment you get it to the moment it will pass on. And, and therefore, it's your journey. So no one else should tell you what to do with your horse or how to do it. The only one that you are responsible for and that you have to um, explain yourself to is your horse and yourself. So to make that journey pleasant and to be honest in that way and say to enjoy the journey, you know, that's I think is really important because I think that people sometimes get rushed out of that by other people, the pressure of other people. So I, I wish that for horse owners that you feel completely in your right to enjoy your journey with your horse, whatever it may be. And uh, as long as it is enhancing your life and that of the horse. That, that's a beautiful message. And I also wish that more horse people would, um, I guess, really own that responsibility for their horse and really be their horse's advocate because uh, they can, you know, you can trust yourself to make your own decisions about your horse's training um, as long as you're putting the horse first. So very cool. And what do you think makes a happy horse? A happy horse is a horse that is not exposed to discomfort every time it sees the human that they're so connected to. Mm. Yes. That's, that's a, uh, that sounds a little bit <laughs> disencouraging, but the fact is, is that most horses have to go through discomfort 
in their relationship with their human. And they have a very close connection with their human. Um, they want to be heard and they actually want to be, they want to do the right thing. So a happy horse is a horse that's understood. And that means that, of course, on the side of that, we also provide their natural way of life. They have, you know, they have the right kind of living circumstances that they are socially kept as a happy horse um, and that they are getting the right foods that they don't suffer uh, from that. But most importantly, our horses will always live somewhat of an unnatural life in a way, but they have also been with us for centuries so it's not like they would be much better off if all of a sudden they'd have to be sent out in the wilderness um you know most of them would die they do want to be in that they're there and they enjoy the the connection but yeah it's the it's the the happy horse is the horse that doesn't have to hold the, hold on to pain um because of um because of accidentally uh, ill practices of of their human and i mean that's not just being rough it means i'm talking about everything how's your halter fitting how's your saddle fitting how are the feet of your horse mm-hmm. how do you approach a horse do you ask for consent in your horse before you do anything mm. yes so yeah really taking that to that deep level you know it, it's not like you say it's about how you do everything is the halter fitting and their the holistic view of their health how you're approaching them that consent that you talk about yeah that's that's really cool I like that you met you bring all those different aspects together to explain that happy horse dynamic um but that's I I watching videos of you to me the horses look happy in their work um and another thing that stands out that I also see in other classical dressage riders is the contact is so light you know it looks like it's just the almost just the weight of the reins um, and obviously contact is a big topic in the horse world right now. What is your definition of contact and how should it feel when riding horses of various levels? Well, that um, that is because it is, it is a very important topic and you're right. And I'd like to reflect back to you because I've seen some beautiful images of you riding with a Cordeo ring. How's your <laughs> contact? Ah, so... well, Yeah. <laughs> So, and I have students that ride with um, Cordae rings. I have students that ride on bitless with bitless bridles. Um, I have all sorts of ride. I have students that ride with a double bridle um, or ride on a curb bit. Um, I have students that ride on snaffles and, uh, and it depends, but everything is the same. Contact is always the same. Contact is connection. Yes. And, um, and so that's the first that's the first uh, thing that we need to all understand is that contact is connection. And that means that there is no force. So if you have weight in your rein or on the mouth of the horse, you are creating, you are impairing the freedom of the horse and the way of movement. Now we need to shape the horse if we want to ride it well, because if we sit on it without shaping it, it will actually break down. It's not able to carry us in a healthy way if we just think that we can just plop ourselves on the back and ride with a completely loose rein and let the horse find its own way because we will break down its effect that um, 
95% of horses or something like that have kissing spine, right? So um, when, when at the at some stage of their riding career, and most horses start creating kissing spine um, at the age of six. That's wow. the question there, there, right? Because we're talking about immature bodies. So deformity is very common, and that's by strong contact or by no contact whatsoever. If we don't shape the horse, if we don't understand what's healthy framing, then we are also hurting the horse. But coming back to the contact, contact is connection. And if you're riding on a bit, the contact on the bit, as in the, the feeling of your fingers on the bit, should be only as much as the ability to feel the tongue underneath the bit. If you're riding on the nose, then the contact should be only as much as feeling that you have a leather strap over the nose and that you can take an influence in bringing the horse's head to one position of the other when you ask. And that when it doesn't work or you get resistance, the context diminishes again rather than increases. If you ride on a Cordeo ring, sometimes, and I'm sure you've experienced this, contact can be a little bit more, um, in, the, in the way of the Cordeo ring, can be a little bit more dense. So as in you're sitting, you're, you're putting the ring on the neck. And so as the horse is learning, you might have to have a little bit more of a, of pressure in a moment. But again, if the pressure is met with resistance, then the ring should fall immediately. And you're not, your horse is not ready. Right. Mm. And when the ring is well used, then the contact is fed a light. Yeah. It is just nearly just a moving over um that um that you're taking from the chest so contact should be always as light as possible and be in the flow of motion of the horse so that it can be soft it's all about suspension it's all about um ease so yeah. contact should be like that Yes, and I think that is what I love so much about riding in the Cordeo. We call it a neck rope, but I know a lot of people call it Cordeo as well, but um, because it feels so light, it feels so free, and it's uh, it's not a continuous pressure, so to speak. Um, mm. And also, you know, when you were saying uh, if you meet resi- if you have resistance with the Cordeo, you you mu- you must let let go because well, it's not going to work anyway. Even if you do increase the pressure with a Cordeo, because <laughs> well, <laughs> you haven't got a lot to back up that kind of um, cue. So yeah, I think that's what I love about riding in a neck rope or Cordeo, and I think that that ultimately I would love to be able to feel that in the in a closer or more fine connection with a bit and a bridle as well, not just in the Cordeo. That is something that I'm seeking myself too. So um, I also wanted to touch on, I know you've had many amazing influences, mentors in your life um, in the horse world, but if you could have dinner with any three horse people, dead or alive, who would it be? (laughs) Well, um, I would choose only dead people at this point. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, just because if I would want to have dinner with someone um, that I'm really interested in that is alive today, I'll probably um, reach out and try and make that happen actively as well. And um, because I really believe in connection and exposing you know, yourself for endless learning. So if I could have a choice, um, I would go much further back in time when people were still training horses to 
the highest level of communication with their humans to perform um, as a war horse in close combat. So not as like horses that were, you know, people that were shooting on each other because that's when it already started to change. But, you know, so I would go early on and I would have try, I would not per se take a person and I would love to have a look at the very first um, riders, the shepherds that would just, you know, be on the back of the horses and carry on and see what it was like, how how history evolved. And, uh, and if I would be in a possibility to have a proper conversation and learning experience, I would definitely want to see Pluvinel, which was in the 1500s, 1600s, like uh, 1555, 1620. And then um, because I think he very early on, um, he was still right in that time frame and, you know, um, he had... Uh, he had certain practices that were unique, um, that made him unique, good or bad. But I would like to know why and how. Um, De La Gurnière was a great master in France um, in the high days of writing for the art of writing, but still obviously reflecting to the purpose of it. That was in the six in sixteen seventeen hundred, and then uh, in exactly the same time frame. There was the uh, Marquis of Marialva, who was in Portugal and um, and who had classical, like who who was you know a classical master, like and also had uh, a real understanding of lightness and and the entire functioning of the body. So when I read. Um, about him and also his student Andrade wrote an amazing, um, left an amazing book about bringing the horse, uh, understanding the functioning of the hind, uh, lifting the front, etc. So I'd like to, I would have loved to see in real life what the, how deep their knowledge was. That's the ones I choose. That was three. <laughs> yeah, wow. And was that book that you mentioned, uh, has that been translated to English? No, certainly not. Uh, so many of the good books that people recommend are not in English. Um, I would do, say. Do you have any favorite uh, course books or resources in English? <laughs> um, so more and more are being, it's definitely worth it to search online for the for the, the names of the masters, right? Um, so that you can, um, as an English person, if you don't, have French or Spanish up your sleeve that you can just copy and paste the name and and search for it <laughs> and um and and have a research for it because there are many universities that are actually these are um some of the, they, these books don't have um a copyright right because it's before a certain time frame mm -hmm. so there is some translation starting to happen just from a historic viewpoint uh, of uh, of universities that um that you can find in english so you have to go online and search for them and maybe they're not uh completely bound like not completely put as a book but maybe you can find parts of it uh, francois robichon de la gurnière like the frenchman that wrote um uh, about the art of horsemanship sure. his book has been very well translated in english it's um uh, it's not always available and it's not these are classical books, so you have to fork out a bit of money to to get one. But um, but there's a very good translation of his um, his work in English. Um, the other ones are sadly mostly in their original language or in German, because in Germany we have some really amazing um, publishers that focus on historic 
um, classical books and uh, classical libraries. So they don't have, Lufino, I don't think is in English either. Uh, okay. Yeah. But anyway, have a look. Go online. <laughs> Excellent. I'm sure that listeners will do that also. And this is a bit of a fun question. What has been your favourite horse-related purchase in the last 12 months? A deer skin. <laughs> deer skin? Yes. Um, As in I love... like, bre- like breeches with deer skin on them or <laughs> I don't know <laughs> what you mean. <laughs> 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 so um so I have a bit of a thing about uh deer skins uh, on horses for riding purposes. So um I have most of my regular students own a reindeer skin and um and I teach people and including myself I because I've worked a lot with rehabilitation I do I work a lot with severe rehabilitation horses that are uh, that have had st- st- strong damages neurologically physically like you know in uh muscle bone all of the structures of the horse and mentally and um and often with ill-fitting saddles and tech a great way to rehabilitate a horse that is have that's had an ill-fitting saddle is to ride without the saddle um on so that you can help to build the correct framing of course a big part of it's in hand but coming back to the reindeer skin um reindeer hair is hollow and so it well deer hair is hollow right and reindeer skin is quite thick so um it creates the most natural gel pad for your horse that you can imagine it's like a shock absorption between a rider and the horse and because of the movement of the hair it's even a fascia release um in it brings fascia release in horses so it stimulates circulation while you're riding your horse so i buy a skin i cut it in half usually because they're usually quite big and then i place it on the horse with the hair side down and then i hop on the horse and i ride the horse without a girth so that the horse can fully breathe and use its diaphragm and um and of course, therefore, it is an amazing tool to help my students to become good riders. Because if you're hanging on or you're starting to get lopsided, you will come off really quickly. It's very slippery. <laughs> but if you're sitting in balance, um, it's quite amazing how secure you'll feel on the horse. So deer skin is uh, my favorite purchase and also one of the last purchases as I was moving um overseas um back from australia i wanted to uh to have some new material here deer skins <laughs> yeah wow i've never heard of that before you might be starting a new trend next minute everyone's riding with deer skins but it totally makes sense in terms of um i yeah, have already the, a little bit the less equipment <laughs> you have <laughs> the less when you first said it, i was like hang on a second what <laughs> i was picturing like deer skin you know how sometimes there's breeches with leather uh, like a leather seat. I was thinking maybe a deer skin seat. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, I, I think no, that the less, <laughs> yeah, the less support we have from our saddles, you know, a lot of modern dressage saddles have big um, knee rolls and really deep seats. But I, I think you're very humbled quite quickly when you ride without those things and you realize, oh, actually, my seat needs a bit of work here. So Yep, sounds like you're onto something with the deer skin. <laughs> yeah, the deer skin is amazing for that. And I mean, it's a it's an incredible tool that helps to establish an honest partnership. 
because if the rider can't do it, why ask it of the horse? Mm. So if you're on a deer skin, it becomes really honest that whatever's not working is usually your own problem, not necessarily that of the horse. And if it is the horse's problem, then it's become the horse's problem because you were both not ready. It doesn't have to be a negative. That's actually a positive. And it's quite amazing when people start riding on a deer skin. Um, and I'm not saying chuck all the saddles away. I say <laughs> use it as a tool for rehabilitation if you have problems in the back of the horse um, and use it as a tool to refine your riding. And um, and personally, I prefer deer skin over any saddle. Um, and as I said before, there's no, there shouldn't be a girth attached to it either, um, because it will help the horse incredibly if that if it can freely move underneath a rider, and it will help a rider's balance. So uh, deer skins are s- super amazing for that. And yeah, I have, have like pretty much every student of mine owns a deer skin, and um, I have many coaches that are you know students, and so their students have deer skins, and so it is becoming a bit of a thing. <laughs> Oh, wow. So it's a crazy, crazy deerskin brigade, but I hope that it will become more practice outside of the, my direct community because it's uh, an incredible tool. <laughs> People will be wanting to buy deerskin off of your website now, so you, you might need to set something up there. <laughs> and you can send me a question. <laughs> I was going to say you have already achieved so much with horses, but I'd love to know what is your ultimate goal with horses. My ultimate goal is to make a better life for horses. So my ultimate goal is what I'm is also my next step that I'm taking right now, and that is that um, you know creating a, a wide-reaching platform online to reach that goal, so that I can make a better world for horses. That's my ultimate goal. Personally, I enjoy the journey with my horses. I've done so many things i've i can educate horses for myself my own personal pleasure is always to take the partnership to the highest level of communication and um performance as possible that's where the performance is you know interlinked but uh, when it comes to in essence what i really want to do with, with within the world of horses it's that to create a better world horses and their humans yes they have a better and better enjoyment out of their partnership yeah absolutely and uh, I love that you're bringing that to the online space because you'll be able to impact more and more people before we wrap up today's interview and just touch base again about where people can find out about you what is the one message that you would like our listeners to to take from today's interview Um, I hope uh, I hope that I can help you to create some awareness on um, on good approaches, and I hope that the people, whoever is listening, um, that you'll have a look at yourself and your relationship, and that you have a that you can question on on approaches that hopefully somewhere in the conversation there are little things maybe the deer skin maybe the <laughs> contact or whatever it was or maybe what makes a horse happy that you are able to take that further that journey further for you and your horse and then above all to really enjoy this amazing experience that we have every day when we have the have the the grace of our horses that we have such an amazing bond with to really enjoy that journey 
and not um, get caught up in the idea that you need to achieve anything because everyone, even a professional to some extent is is working on a hobby. So um, so that partnership is the most important thing. And I hope that um, that it will help you somewhere on the on the journey. And maybe give you some answers and clarity to uh, to say, yes, I know that something wasn't right. Um, I would love to go and research now further and I'm going to find the answer instead of being told by other people that I'm just making things up or my horse just needs to carry on. So that uh, that I hope that people can take that that away from uh, what you're doing as well, Mali. I think you're um, bringing something beautiful together too. So. Um, Thank you so much. That is my mission also. I I hope that people get a lot out of these podcasts and I think they've definitely got a lot out of today's interview. Lots of little things to take away. And often if if it's just that one little thing that we can change in someone's mind that can make all the difference in their horses and and their happiness. So that's what this is all about. Now, um, let's touch base again on where our listeners can find out more about you and your upcoming courses, your website, Facebook, etc. Please let us know. And I'll also put all the links um, in the show notes to this episode also. Yes, sure. So we're on social media, Belinda Bolsenbrook Academy. That's also my website. Um, You can find me there. And if you'd like to have some help or be pointing in the right direction, you can email, you can message through the social media uh, media, uh, presence. And um, and hopefully um, you'll be um, you'll be getting on a on a journey with either me or one of my students or however it comes about you'll be able to find more on those things so as i said before my platform uh, for online co- uh, courses uh, for you know finding your own study material to learn from from me uh, on easy lessons that you can follow and um, that's all going to launch in april towards the end of april we're working really hard on that right now with uh, with an amazing team of professionals so i'm really excited to share that with you uh, in a little bit um and then um if you can keep an eye on the website that's uh, that's that's going to all be coming soon really really soon so Perfect. Well, Belinda, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. All things horsemanship, classical dressage, deer skins, and so much more. Um, I hope we can connect again in the future. And thank you again so much for coming on today. Thank you too. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Horsemanship Breakthroughs podcast. Make sure you hit the follow button so you get notified every time a new episode is released. And if you've learned even just one small thing from today's show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or screenshot this episode and share it on social media. You can connect with me on Instagram at Amalia underscore horses or my website AmaliaDempsey.com where you can find free resources to help you on your horsemanship journey. That's all for today. Thanks for being here. Remember to train with kindness and ride with excellence and I'll see you in the next episode.